Welcome to the Woman Inc. podcast. This is the place for the new generation of women looking to lead the life of their absolute dreams. I'm your host, Jenna Toddy, entrepreneur, life coach, and strategist for modern businesswomen and entrepreneurs. I am a city girl, sriracha lover, and that friend who will hype you up when you forget how powerful you truly are. I am on a mission to make Women Inc. the most powerful network of women who are leveling up, owning what they want, and becoming who they've always wanted to be. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you went all in on yourself? No turning back. If so, you are in the right place, my girl. Let's get started. Hello, my beautiful Woman Inc. listeners. We are switching it up with a Wednesday episode. I am beyond excited to introduce today's guest. In this week's episode, I had the honor of speaking with Sunaina Sinha, one of the most powerful women in finance, about how she built her empire. Only 5% of private equity leaders are women. Sunaina has managed to become a private equity star by founding Sibyl Capital, a leading placement agent and secondary market advisor that oversees billions of dollars in deals per year. Moving to different countries growing up is what helped Sunaina build a thick skin every time she was the only woman in the room. Using different tactics to fit into a heavily male-dominated industry, Sunaina has owned and managed her firm for over 10 years now. In addition, Seville Capital recently got acquired by a major public company, which is a huge, huge accomplishment. Sunaina obtained a Bachelor's of Science degree in Management Science and Engineering, as well as a Master's of Science degree in Chemical Engineering, both from Stanford University. She then went on to receive her MBA from Harvard Business School. I could spend probably an hour listing just Sunaina's accomplishments, but I think my favorite part of the episode is when she talks about how she stays centered and grounded. I hope you enjoy, and now let's get over to my conversation with Sunaina. Sunaina, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jenna. I am very intrigued to talk to you. I've been very excited about this interview. My boyfriend works in private equity, so I kind of get the background stories. And I always tell him that it's so amazing when women are in this world because it's such a male-dominated world. Can you just walk us back to before starting Sibyl Capital, your private equity advisory company? Well, let's go right back to the beginning. I am the daughter of a diplomat who my dad works, uh, still works for the World Bank. And we moved around a lot when I was growing up. So uh, born in India, but uh, at the age of eight, started traveling the world with my parents, grew up in Nigeria, Zimbabwe and Vietnam. And from Vietnam, applied to college and um, decided to go to Stanford, Stanford for undergrad and master's, both in engineering And at Stanford, really got immersed into entrepreneurship, being in the Valley in the early days of the 2000s. It was really something to behold. Um, And then after I graduated from Stanford, worked in a couple of junior mid-level business development roles, and then went to um, Harvard Business School for my MBA and decided to join the asset management world, Um, worked for two very large hedge funds um, before deciding that, you know, I was 
30 years old, I had gained a, a set of skills I knew were valuable. I'd gotten to know institutional investors that I knew had uh, immense capital flows to, to bring to the table for um, potential private equity clients, hedge fund clients, and so on. And that led me to saying, listen, let me give this a shot. If I'm good at what I do, why not bet on myself? And that's why I decided I would start Sabil Capital. My former uh, employer became uh, client number one and another large client um, in the private equity space became client number two. And that's how life started in my spare bedroom of my apartment then. And um, here we are 10 years later, having sold the firm to a Fortune 500. So incredible. I mean, any parent were to be like, this is the ultimate dream. It would just be your resume. So that is very impressive and incredible. When you graduated, obviously you had so many different options at your disposal. Was it hard for you to kind of make that leap of, I know I can have the security of one of the big names, but to really go and bet on yourself, as you said, what were the background emotions going on during that decision? You know, the twi- two times I graduated, once from Stanford for my undergraduate and master's, we were in the, in the early days of the dot-com bubble crashing. There weren't that many job opportunities, and I was so grateful to get an opportunity with the place I'd su- done a summer internship with. Uh, it was owned by a group of investors led by this stalwart of the biotech world called Alex Afferoni. And his companies in the Valley, he had biotech companies in the Valley. I interned at one of them over the summer and his uh, team of investors took me under their wings and I worked for two of their um, businesses before I went to Harvard Business School. I was just grateful, Jenna, to have a job. Um, But it's unbelievable how life works because that was my first taste of entrepreneurship, working at these small businesses, working under, you know, the president of the company in one situation, the CEO in the other, and directly seeing them run, manage, make strategic decisions. It was my first foray. So my first lesson learned for any listener out there would be, you know what, you don't always go for the brand name. These two companies, if I named them for you, Suramed and Maxim, no one's heard of them. But the exposure I had there to strategic level thinking, the decision-making table, being I was able to sit in on board meetings, I was able to sit in on large deal negotiations was unparalleled. So such that when I applied to business school, applied to Stanford, Harvard, and Wharton, and I got into all three because my experience set was so unique. Now, fast forward to graduating from Harvard Business School, same thing. I ended up, I seem to time my graduations perfectly. Summer of 2007, um, Bear Stearns was just about to go belly up. Um, the markets were starting to go into meltdown mode and there I was looking for another job. Again, I was just grateful to have my start in asset management. I knew I wanted to shift away from biotech. I wanted to work in a product and an asset class that I was much more familiar with, that I had domain expertise in. So that's the second lesson in life that sometimes you feel you don't have any choices, just flow with it. Whatever the opportunity that comes your way, figure out how you're going to immerse yourself in it and build a network. And number one, and number two, build a muscle, build a skill using whatever job you have, whether it's resilience or perseverance or learning how to do a certain type of deal. Um, That really helped me build confidence in myself, Jenna. And that's when I, it was time to make a decision. I was going to start something on my own. Was I going to go get another job? That confidence that, listen, I've been there. I've, I've seen these people do this. Let me give it a shot and do it myself. And that confidence made the difference in that decision. Oh, I love it. And so when you go to start Seville, 
what was the thing that you decided would set you apart? Like, what was your mission for Seville to exist in the world? Yes, um, I had worked in-house and hired advisors in the past. And I'd seen that advisors were able to give advice that was very focused on their own bottom line, i.e. the client that paid the biggest check, retainer or fee or whatever it is, got the best advice and the attention of the principals. And everybody else, it was sort of catch as catch can. I wanted to be different in two ways. Number one, I wanted to be the best advisor to mid-market private equity firms around the world that I could be. And by advisor, I mean a thought partner. I wanted to be on their speed dial. I wanted to be their trusted first call if anything happened inside their firms. And they wanted advice on not just raising capital for their own funds, but also secondaries market advisory. Now, a lot of them will call me even when they're thinking about, uh, you know, a senior level hire. They're asking me about, you know, promotions in the firm. I really wanted to become that thought partner to them as they built their businesses. And that's what set me apart in terms of the mission, but then also in terms of the journey where it was very clear to me that that was the role that I was born to fulfill to the private equity industry. The second way, and this is really important, is that I wanted to be the change I wish to see in, in a very male dominated industry that a, a, a woman at the time when I started the firm, as I said, it was only 30 years old, a young woman could build a business, you know, get married, have three children in the last decade, and still be a trusted advisor to dozens of private equity firms. And you know, half my firm from the very beginning has been women and minorities. It's an all-female leadership team. And we're very, very proud of that. We're proud of the fact that we built something very, very unique here. So incredibly expanding, I'm sure, for especially women in finance or women who want to go into finance and be a mom and do all of the things to look at you and know that this is possible. So early on, it's, I can imagine, very, very difficult and time consuming to build your own advisory company. What were the challenges mentally? Did you have any sort of imposter syndrome growing it, looking at other people thinking, okay, I know I have this skill set, I have this mission, but can I actually do this? Yes, tons of it, especially in the early years. You know, private equity is a very close knit, very relationship driven, very cliquey industry. There's just no other way to put it. And coming into it and sort of growing a business in it from a standing start, which is what I was doing, was incredibly difficult. There were many times where the, the, the door was shut on our faces and we didn't know why. We didn't understand why. And now I look back and I know, I, I now get it. that you know I, I was a person with a new firm with a new name they'd never heard of who wanted a very large piece of business from them. They went to where safety or perceived safety lay, and that was someone they'd known a long time. They'd done business with many times before. Um, and it was quite a battle to figure out how we were going to build the business brick by brick. And sometimes those bricks were just tiny. And what I decided straight away that we would just keep racking up tombstones. We would keep racking up small, small successes, which would lead to medium successes, which would lead to larger wins. And that would take years to do, and you had to play the very long game. We would never give advice to a client to maximize a short-term fee. We would always keep the view on the long game that we wanted this client to come back five years later. 
not just in the next 24 months or 12 months, we wanted them with us for a very long term. So that made a huge difference, even in the early years when it was really hard. And I felt, you know, very many times that, you know, I was an outsider looking in. Um, And then once those early successes wrapped up, that's when I could look back and say, okay, now we can go for a bigger slice of the pie and now bigger and so on and so forth. So that was, that was really important in those early years. Um, Dan, the other thing I would say um, is very important is that I had a personal board of directors. Now this term has now become common, but in the early years was not. Um, it came from a Stanford professor of mine, Professor Tom Kosnick, um, who really coined the term at Stanford early on have a personal board of directors that you can rely on as a sounding board when times get tough. And I sure did. And I'm very grateful to them for, for being there for me, especially when I had an, you know, business was tiny. I, all I was looking were a whole bunch of failures back to back and one odd success here and then. So I'm very grateful to that personal board of directors that has evolved over time, but has always been a, 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 that, that concept has always been present in my life. Yeah. I love that advice. And then, so the way I would think about it is you are getting clients to bet on you, but then you're also having to build a team. So what did that process look like of really getting people to trust you and come on board and your mission to build this kind of dream team? I think that it was just like anything else in life, a whole bunch of trial and error to find the people who were good fits for the business that I was a good fit for their career as well. Um, my saying at Sibyl and also to my entrepreneurs that I mentor, um, that I sit on the boards of, is that people think they're more entrepreneurial than they actually are. Mm-hmm. It is hard work, not just starting a business, but working in a small business. It's not everybody's cup of tea. And everyone thinks it's really exciting and they jump in there and they're like, oh, wait, um, I have to bind my own books tonight because there's the assist- the one assistant in the office isn't there or there is no assistant. That is a, 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 a real you know eye opener for some folks. So I cannot take any credit for saying that there's some magic sauce to it. You tell your story, you tell it as well as you can, you bet on an individual to come on board and they may or may not work out. The way to build a team long-term is to figure out what are the values you're looking for. And in you're in a high growth startup, those values are evolving. The company we are today is not the company we were 24 months ago or even 12 months ago for that matter. So in that ever evolving situation, what you have is um, you have a bunch of employees who've been with you three or four years ago. They may not be right for the business you have today. They were right three years ago. So um, I tell entrepreneurs, cut yourself a ton of slack. You're going to get a lot of hiring decisions wrong. And that's okay. It's okay to say I got that wrong. It's okay to talk to the employee and say, listen, it's not you. It's not me. This fit isn't right going forward. You're not happy or I'm not happy. You know what? It's been a good journey let's figure out what the next steps are so that you can be happy as well in in whatever your next career calling is. I can guarantee you, if you have issues with an employee, they also have issues with you. They're not happy somewhere deep down because you're obviously not happy with their performance or their fit with the business. So um, cut yourself a ton of slack. I didn't. I used to be very hard on myself when I would get hiring decisions wrong. There would be a lot of, um, you know, let's just hire this person and see how it goes. 
that doesn't work either. You've got to know why are you hiring this person? What is the fit? What is the problem they're going to solve for you? How are they going to drive your business forward? Um, and, and take it from there. I, I am very grateful for all of those individuals that gave it a shot at Sabil, that built their careers in Sabil. And I'm also look back and see a number of them who moved on and have moved on to bigger and better things. And I'm glad that I was able to provide them with the platform to step into private equity in many, in many cases or step on to, and move on to bigger and better things in their own careers. And, and it's absolutely okay to look at each individual that comes into your life as someone who comes into life for a season, right? If the, sometimes those seasons are short and sometimes those seasons are long and multi-years long and whatever your journey together, just honor and respect that and move on. And no point being hard on yourself as an entrepreneur, that is a very common fallacy to, to make. You will absolutely get those decisions wrong. Yeah, that is so true. There's no way to get it 100% right. So <laughs> early on, I mean, I know from watching Jared, my boyfriend, the crazy hours of private equity. And when we first started dating, I was like, is this actually normal? And then I realized, you know, the 3 a.m. nights are pretty normal in this industry. And then on top of that, doing your own thing, how did you balance really like keeping yourself sane and having that time for you to kind of just unwind when I'm sure you were putting in pretty crazy hours and maybe still do? Absolutely still do. Um, It's relentless being in private equity and then private equity plus running a business, you hit the nail on the head. The two together is... um, there's no days off. So uh, it's quite, uh, it's been like drinking from a fire hose. It's just always gushing at you. And you're always, you know, like, how do I divert the stream so I can actually process all this flow? Um, I think that the the really three things that I would say work for me and that I would encourage other women in business to think about each of these three, um, what centers you? For me, it was meditation. I got into meditation exactly 10 years ago, right when I started the business. Uh, and I go for an annual meditation course. That meditation course is devices off. It's deep. It's, it's a week-long silent meditation course called Vipassana. And for me, that one week in the calendar is sacrosanct. My employees, my clients, my children, my husband, my family all know that come what may, she's going to take that week and go and go into a deep, personal, spiritual cleanse of her mind and being and come back out a better, stronger person. But that week is untouchable. And um, I, in fact, I'm going to uh, my next Vipassana course in about eight days time. And if, for me, that has been the anchor. So not only do I go for a week, uh, a, a year, I also come back and I meditate for an hour every day, every morning and have done for um, close to a decade now. That's been my centering um, you know, my north, north reset compass uh, that I've used every single day to get me back to square one and think about what's important and reconnect with myself, the deeper parts of myself that otherwise in this crazy zany world of kids and work and clients and building businesses, um, you just end up losing yourself and losing your mind. So that's number one. Number two is you've got to have an amazing support structure, right? So figure out where that support comes from. If it's coming from family, if it's getting from, coming from friends, You need, I need, you need, we all need a half an hour to talk about absolutely nothing related to work. (laughs) It's unbelievable how good that it feels when you come back to whatever you're working on, you know, whether it's you're building a Lego set with your, with your kid, or you're talking to a girlfriend and and talking about nothing, but whatever's on us weekly's cover that week. Um, Think (laughs) about that 
30 minutes a snippet of, okay, I'm just going to decompress and do something absolutely unrelated to my day job. And then the third thing I think it, that's been incredibly important to me in terms of reconnecting um, is a sisterhood around me. So I am the oldest of two sisters and I have a ton of girlfriends. And I think that that connection in a very, especially in a very male dominated industry has really figured, you know, has kept me real. So you don't let any success get to your head and you don't let any failures really get to you. And they were able to help me process a lot of the emotions. And sometimes it was disappointment and sometimes it was elation. And that sisterhood has been incredibly important to me. I love that answer. It was so good. Uh, I have definitely found the same in mine. I can relate completely. So it's very rare to be acquired as a woman-owned business by a Fortune 500 company, especially in finance. What did you do to set yourself up for that? Do you feel like you had that in mind all along to be acquired by a big company? Or do you think it just happened in, you know, in response to what you had built? It was definitely the latter. It was not my um, goal to be acquired. And I think that therein lies the secret, right? When you have an attachment to an endpoint that you so desperately want, I must go public, I must be acquired. Ooh, you're making decisions that are quite different to how you build a business for long-term value, to hold long-term value that's built, to use Jim Collins's phrase, that's built to last, right? I never thought about that endpoint. I thought that I would, you know, end up running Sabil for as long as I could. I just love my job and I love doing what I do. And, and I was going to do it for as long as I possibly could. So that meant that I made decisions that were good for the long-term um, sustainability and viability of the business and for our clients in a way that I probably would not have done if I thought there was a sale in 2021. So that's the first thing. Um, but second thing is that that then fed into so many of the other things that I was doing as part of this long game that didn't inc include an acquisition, like building the profile of the business, positioning us as thought leaders, taking on clients that had a lot of repeatability and stickiness to them, um, you know, driving value for them year on year. Um, and that's what uh, um, this Fortune 500, Raymond James, must have noticed. I think you'll have to ask them exactly how they noticed, but they say they noticed us through a client who had been, uh, whom we just delivered a very successful outcome from. And they'd um, had a chat with that client. The client said, we couldn't be happier with Sabiel's work. We'd use them again. And they're going to work with us on several other things again. And that's what led them to reach out to me. So it was certainly not built to sell. And I would encourage entrepreneurs who love the tinsel of an IPO or a sale and think that's my end goal. No, the end goal is how do you create real value for your customers or your clients and build a business around that? And you know what? If you do a good job and you make sure you do all the right things for clients and build your profile as that differentiated partner to them, someone will come and find you and see the value in what you've created. Yes, I love it. And I feel like this is those wins that come once in a lifetime. What did you do to celebrate? Just curious. So fun to ask that. So the win was, it was only about a week ago or 10 to no, two weeks. So new. <laughs> so new. Um, my first step is meditation. So go center myself and say thank you to the universe for this incredible journey. One journey ends, i.e. building the business as an entrepreneur. That chapter comes to a close, but a new chapter begins. I'm very much staying with the business 
and creating an even larger business on the Raymond James platform. So a new journey begins, a journey in which, by the way, I get to be an employee again. I get to have a boss again. That's a little surreal. I'll tell you after 10 years of being CEO, this is going to be a bit of a change. So I need to just reprogram myself for the next leg of the journey. And definitely there will be a celebration towards the middle or end of summer, but stay tuned for that. I haven't quite made up my mind. I'm just, it's been just blocking and tackling and trying to get myself into the meditation course in eight days time. And I'll come back and and make a call after that. And get re-centered. Yes, I love it. I know when we we first booked this recording, but this hasn't happened yet. And then I got the update over email. My gosh, if we put this off a couple more weeks, I feel like something else crazy will happen. Like your bio keeps <laughs> expanding, uh, which is so, so exciting. So first, congrats. And my last question is, what would be your number one piece of advice for women who want to either start their own company or just really go after something big in life that they're maybe timid or afraid of going after all the way? Yeah. So I think the big piece of advice I would have is just get started. Start small. You don't have to, if your end goal is this big, beautiful business, it doesn't build itself overnight. You have to start somewhere. If you're trying to change careers, if you're trying to start your own business, if you're trying to, you know, shoot for a promotion, figure out what it is, what are the skills you need to do it and just get started. If it's sales, get at a job that's sales oriented. If it's marketing, do an online course for marketing, knowing that that's going to help you market your products and your solutions better. Just get started. Start small and build from there. If you're trying to be an entrepreneur, don't be hesitant that, listen, I need a co-founder. I need this. I need that. Until I have these things, I can't start my own business. That's a deferred life plan. Deferred life plans, as we all know, end up just being pushed out and pushed out and pushed out because the time will never be right. And this is one of the big lessons in life. Timing is never great for some of these big life changes, but you've got to just get them started. And sometimes you just start with a small seed and then you keep planting it and nurturing it and giving it some light and a little bit more light. And you will see the plant start to grow. And you look back a couple of years later and say, wow, look where I started and look where I am today. Um, that's incredibly important. So if you're a woman out there looking for a promotion or you're trying to get, get, get going on something big in life, figure out what is the next small step and to make that one small step and then figure out what's the next right decision and make that one. And those small, small moves then will lead to bigger strides. And then you can look back and say, look how far I came just taking one tiny baby step at a time. I think when you're looking at big, hairy goals, audacious goals, they're fantastic. But again, they can be too big to digest and you have to get started somewhere. And so my mission is always with women and young entrepreneurs who come to me for advice, like, okay, you know what? Just build something, build one product, just start testing it out. Just doing some, just do some beta testing in the market. See what happens. See what feedback you get. Start meeting people, start networking, whatever it is. See what happens. And the universe has this magical way of whatever that path and destiny is. Starts just very easily. So, you know, sometimes not that easily, but it'll take time. But you'll start seeing doors open and pointing you in the direction that you're meant to go on. Oh, you are such a force and I am so grateful to have had this time with you. This is going to inspire so many women. So thank you so much for sharing your story and just giving all of the advice. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. 
Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode and are feeling so fired up to go out there and create that business or side hustle that's been on your to-do list, you know, a little bit longer than you care to admit. It is never too late to make the first step towards the life you want more than anything else. If you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep becoming the woman of your wildest dreams.